This is Carrie Gephardt, and you're listening to Five for Fruit, your five-minute fix for Reformed theology and practice. What we do here is go back, 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 back. You're now listening to a special edition episode of Five for Fruit with Carrie Gephardt. On special edition episodes, Carrie interviews authors, fellow podcasters, believers, and just about anyone you can think of. And they have wonderful discussions, but it takes longer than five minutes. No! 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 So now you have been warned, but I pray you'll listen, learn, and grow. Now, DJ, hit that track. Is in the hands of your love, everlasting. I start where I finish, pick it back up where I left it. I'm just a man of unclean lips. I've only seen a glimpse, but everywhere I look, I see his fingerprints. All things were made through him. We received his revelation, so we reflect it when we breathe. And the concepts we conceive are born of spiritual seed. Welcome to a, another episode of Five for Fruit. You've heard it. It is a special edition episode, so it's going to be longer than five minutes, but I hope you enjoy it. Well, we're happy to have on the show today pastor and author Nate Pickowicz of Harvest Bible Church in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. And uh, he is the author of a recently released book, Reviving New England, and he's got some other projects, but more, more in particular, I have him on the show today to talk about his most recent book, why We're Protestant, an introduction to the five solas of the Reformation. We've been doing a five solas series on the podcast recently, and I thought it would be great to uh, get an author and pastor on the show to talk about his book and point you guys, the listeners, to another place where you can go and you can learn more about these important doctrines. Nate, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. So glad to have you on the show today. And, uh, and uh, I'm so thankful that you, you've come on to, to share with us a little bit of some of the, uh, the, the study and the work that you've done to put this book together. Now, am I correct in saying that this was uh, started as a study that you did at your church? Yeah, so I was talking with my wife after Reviving New England came out, and I love to write. I'm always interested in kind of what's next, and so I was thinking through what to do. And we were talking, and I said, man, it would just be great to do something, have it come out for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Like, I'd be great to do something. But I wasn't sure what exactly I was going to do. I I wanted to write, and I just was thinking, boy, if I could do something and at least teach some of this doctrine to to my own church, I think that would be beneficial, because I I didn't think a lot of them knew very much of this. You know, certainly I'm relatively new uh, to the study myself, and so uh, I took the opportunity to teach through the five solas uh, on Sunday morning and and try to take a historical theology approach so that it wasn't just stories about the Reformation, but also like getting into the doctrine, which eventually, you know, you, you, you work your way back to Scripture, so it is a scriptural study because that's where the doctrines are coming from. So, yeah, it was born out of a desire to teach uh, in the local uh, the local church and sort of bring them through it, but also kind of with a view to the fact that I might be doing something with it in the future as well. Right. Well, that's, that just ties right in with, uh, one, the introduction that you have in the book, and then maybe a, a question that just ties right in that, that I would ask is, um, you know, at the beginning of the book, you kind of explain a, a crisis, a crisis that's going on, uh, maybe more... Uh, 
more in your area, specifically in New England. I, I know that that's something that you're passionate about with, with your book, Reviving New England, but also broadly, you know, through maybe just American Christianity, American evangelicalism, this crisis that's this happening um, with kind of an ignorance maybe of, of our, our church history, um, why exactly we're Protestant. Of course, that's a great, a, a great uh, title for the book. But maybe you could explain that crisis a little bit, maybe in your particular context, and then in conjunction with that, I mean, what was the reason that you had for for the desire that you had for writing the book? Yeah, so I think that the the crisis that you know that I mentioned in the book, I, I sort of just allude to it as like an introduction to really the the bigger issue. But we're really facing an identity crisis. Uh, you read the book of uh, read the book of Ephesians, and Ephesians is really all about finding our identity in Christ. Uh, I mean, without right. having an understanding of who we are in Christ first, we have no idea who we are in and of ourselves, and we have no idea what our mission is. So everything, our identity has to be in Christ, and I think we've lost something of that in the, in the broader movement. Uh, I don't think the church ever loses its identity because the church is, is the blood-bought body uh, of Christ, and so we, we don't ever lose that. But in terms of the discussions that we have, so many people are sitting in church congregations and frankly, don't know why they're there. Uh, and even even believers yeah. who are earnest believers may not even really know. They they say they love Jesus. They say that they're born again, and they they may well be, but they don't really understand the distinctives of the faith. They don't really understand the history, like you mentioned. Uh, and this goes farther back than just the Reformation. I mean, this goes back to Augustine. This goes back to Paul. Uh, I mean, this is really the core of of doctrine. What it means to be a Christian. So um, we we've seen in recent years. Uh, you know, the Protestant movement, it used to be where, I mean, our our pastors and teachers would write sort of uh, treatises against um, Roman Catholicism, but yeah. in the last 50 years or so, we've sort of been embracing them again. You know, Rome hasn't budged a bit. They haven't changed one tenet of their faith, um, but we seem to want to jump ship all the time and, and head over, and we don't even know why or what we're doing. So this was really more of an attempt to sort of re- Renail down what is essential for the faith, and uh, and more than just being reformed in terms of being Calvinistic, Reformation doctrine goes so much farther, and there's so much more to it. And this really is kind of a, a summation of that doctrine. Right. Well, you know, uh, I don't know if you meant that pun, but you said nailed down like the ninety-five <laughs> thesis. <laughs> I've been thinking. <laughs> I use it in the book, I think, but I mean, you know, dude, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to celebrate the Reformation in such a way. we got to use every metaphor that comes across our path. Right. You know, we got yeah. to nail it to the door, you know? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and you know, I appreciate um, the pastoral tone in the book because if it did start as a study for your people at your church, um, particularly in, in New England that has such a rich history uh, in these things, but have really come away from it, um, it's such a, a great it's such a great perspective to address people who maybe uh, would call themselves Protestant but don't know why they are or what makes them different uh, right. than Catholics. And you know, of course, at our church, we talk about well, there's a difference between your your Catholic neighbor, who may have a sincere, genuine faith in Christ, um, but and, and and then in distinction with that, what the Catholic Church teaches. Right. in their books. And, right. uh, and, and, and in that sense, uh, your Catholic neighbor may have true faith in Jesus Christ, but it's 
not because of the teaching of the church. It's in spite of the teaching. It's in spite of it. That's of the right. church. Yeah, and, I've thought about this too, where, you know, if... If it is possible, you know, to to come to saving faith in Jesus and the Catholic Church, then you have to exist in that system with everything in that system fighting against you. Like you actually have to to do more work and to fight harder right. to remain faithful to Christ if you are in that. And I, I don't, I don't think I, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I know, but I don't think it's impossible to be a believer. I just think it's, I don't know why you would stay in a Catholic church if you were a Christian. Absolutely. I, mean, I don't know how you I don't know how you could suffer through the mass of watching that, watching the priest offer up the sacrifice of Christ again. I don't know how you could stand that. Right. But I I suppose it is maybe possible. Uh, I don't know. I it, it's hard to know the the contents of of a person's heart, but man, the more you study it, the more you actually understand what the scriptures teach about salvation, about the gospel, about the finished work of Christ. Man, it, it's it's hard not to see that as a blasphemy, right? And and you know what? Um, when I really came to the understanding of these reformed doctrines, I was in a church context uh, that was far from Catholic, obviously, but mm. um, still believed in in what I would call a a a, a works based righteousness, particularly on the issue of baptism. Uh, you know, baptism mm. by immersion is required as a believer is required in order to be saved. And uh, once I came to an understanding of justification by faith alone, I said, I can never go back there. There's right. no way I could I, I could return to that. And I didn't want my people to live in that uh, realm of doctrine either, because right. uh, to not to not understand what what Christ has accomplished for us is is really to pl- to place yourself as a Christian in a very weak and uh, in a very um, vulnerable place if you are a true Christian. So Paul says it in, in Galatians chapter 3. I mean, he's arguing with, with the church. You know, he who began a work in you, the you know, the Spirit began in you. Or are you going to continue that work in the flesh? And I think that, that we have a tendency to do that. You know, we, we'll say we're justified by faith apart from works of the law, but then inwardly, because of our of our of even our sinful nature, we want to slug it out in the flesh and we want to be synergistic right. and sort of attribute so much more of that to ourselves. And we, I think we part of, part of the time is that we're deceived, and the other part of the time is I think we do it out of fear that we're not doing enough mm-hmm. and we have this this worker mentality. But in truth, you know, uh, seeing seeing the finished work of Christ, understanding justification by faith apart from any works, it actually it, it places us into a weakened position. It places us into a, a humble position where we have nothing to do but praise God for what he's done. Uh, that's why sola gratia is so important, you know, to understand that it's the work of God. It's his grace and then everything that 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 flows out of a justified heart that's the you know the fruit of righteousness so right uh, just such a such a distinction you know it really needs to be made well i pray that uh, that this book would be used by god to really kind of i think it really is a great introductory work to the five solas for the some of the reasons you mentioned i think it does explain the the historical context and I know that in, in your first chapter, Light After Darkness, that's really what you're kind of getting after is the factors that lead up, that led up to what happened in the Protestant Reformation and why it's so uh, important. Um, but then also uh, bringing us back to the scripture and how how really these things came out of a deep and focused study in the Word of God during the Reformation. But concerning chapter 1, Light After Darkness, which is kind of just summarizing those historical factors that that came up, that that, that brought about the Protestant Reformation, maybe you could uh, 
you know, answer two questions pr- pretty briefly. One, maybe summarize quickly what those cultural historical uh, reasons were that brought about the Reformation. And then secondly, uh, keep this in mind, if you had to, what would you say is the one reason that the Reformation had to happen? <laughs> I know I said briefly. So, <laughs> so one, one thing I've learned or am learning in studying this is that it is so incredibly dense and, you know, I, I thought I was going to take a few weeks, you know, six weeks and teach through this at my church. And I, you know, I, I read a whole bunch of books and did a whole bunch of study and was building off of my previous understanding. And I was realizing after reading all of this that I'm like, there is so much more to this. And I think one of the misconceptions that we that we buy into is that Martin Luther himself started all this. And, yeah. and you know, certainly God used him in a mighty way uh, to, to bring to bring light to this to this uh, issue. But certainly there were others that were coming before him. I mean, really, you know, Luther, when he's uh, he's approached, he, he's debating one of the Roman Catholic scholars, and they accuse him of being uh, to, of being a Hussite, you know, John Huss. Right. And Luther had to go back and actually research and, and try to uncover what what Huss was teaching. Then he realized that wow, yeah, this is this is actually what I believe. Yeah. And he says, so I guess we're all Hussites, is really what he says. So and Huss got killed for of, it. You know, John. <laughs> And, and Huss got killed for which is kind of their point. They're like, if you if you keep on going this direction, he's a known heretic. We're going to kill you too. Exactly. And so Luther, you know, does whatever Luther does. But yeah, I mean, so we're in the tradition of Wycliffe. We're in the tradition of Huss. We're in the tradition of uh, the Waldensians. So this this movement really has been has was birthing for a long time. Um, but really, what Luther did was Luther was coming out of the Catholic Church, and Luther. I mean, really, there there are two main principles. There's what's known as the material principle of the Reformation, which is the doctrine of justification, so sola fide, yeah. that we're saved by, by grace through faith. And so the gospel is really the heart of what they're trying to recover. Over and over again, Luther is seeing the abuses of the church. Um, he's seeing, um, and really this actually kind of gets tied to a nationalistic um, movement because Germany was incredibly oppressed and they were taking being taken advantage of. Right. So the people were catching on to this because of the nationalistic oppression, and they were just seeing abuse after abuse after abuse. And so that was sort of the emotional response. Mm-hmm. But at the heart of the emotional response is a doctrinal response, saying, "Look, these people are are being taken to the cleaners." because they think they're getting right with God, but in truth, it's not. It's not this way at all. The Scriptures teach something completely different. So he was fighting to recover justification by faith, but then really the formal principle is he was fighting to recover the doctrine of Scripture. Right, the authority uh, of so Scripture. that's what we—the the authority of Scripture, right. So, you know, in essence, it, it was it was it started as sort of a rejection of abuses, but really the, the fuel to the fire is really the battle over doctrine— and mainly the authority. Who who has the authority, and what is the message? How does a person really truly get right with God? Right. And that that question is really the question I ask and try to answer: is how does a person get right with God? And that really is the heart, I think, of the Reformation. Yeah, and I, and and you know, I would just second that. I mean, the Reformation, God, the, the Reformation had to happen because the church needed to recover the gospel. That's it. And and it was and and for Martin Luther especially, it was. Very much pastoral concerns. You saw people being being oh, yeah. hurt, um, and yeah. um, and you see that attitude throughout his his continued ministry. But let's move on to well, people were going. I was just yeah, going to say yeah, one go thing. Ahead. People were going out and buying these indulgences when Tetzel comes to town. 
people are going to the adjacent towns, bringing back their indulgences, and he's seeing these things, and he's losing his mind. He's like, this is atrocious. Like, this this guy's just peddling, you know, nothing. It's it's garbage. And so, you know, there's a very visceral response, as, as I believe Christians should have, to something that's ungodly. You know, we don't want to... We want to be angry, but don't sin. We can't sin in our anger, but there's some. There needs to be a, a holy zeal, a righteous indignation yeah. against false doctrine, false practice. And I think that, you know, like you said, it's, it was very pastoral. I mean, he cared about the people he was ministering to, and wanted them to know Christ and know the gospel rightly. So, um, so much of this is so. It's is not ivory tower theologians. These are guys who are fighting and trying to, you know, preserve their congregations and you know, purge them from error, you know? Right. Well, then, then obviously you go from, from kind of setting that, that the historical cultural, um, things that led up to the reformation to talk about the first sola, sola scriptura. And, and of course, how, obviously how important sola scriptura being first is because it really sets the groundwork for, um, where the authority comes to say these other solas are, are true as well. Um, and uh, you you said so earlier. You briefly mentioned that the, the sola scriptura has been described as the formal principle of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could just talk a little bit more about why that is. Yeah. So again, this is a, a battle over authority. You know, if if we don't have scripture, if if suddenly something else ha- is brought to bear, if the source of our authority and the source of our doctrine, the source of our teaching is from somewhere else, then then it's any any man's game at that point. And that's really what was what was happening is you you had the Roman Catholic Church saying, oh, of course we, we revere scripture, you know, scripture is authoritative, but also we have the church traditions, we also have the the you know the authority of the magisterium, which is really the yeah. office of the Pope and, and his teachers. So, you know, really it came down to, well, okay, we have Scripture, but we've also got something else, too, which kind of adds to and illuminates. And, and the argument is made, well, you know, you can't understand Scripture without the office of the magisterium, without the, without the teaching of the, of the Pope and of the Roman Catholic Church. So, you know, it really became a matter of, you know, can a, can a, a regenerated, spirit-filled, illuminated believer understand the Scriptures enough for life and practice, or do we need someone else to tell us what it means? So without without a right understanding of the scriptures and a right a right recovery of that of the scripture, um, then really everything else uh, is on the table, and um, you know that's that's the authority that's vested in the scriptures. That comes from God. I mean, God has given us His Word, and uh, I mean right. He has the sole right, the sole authority to speak to His church and tell them uh, what is important, what is binding. So. Uh, really, to recover the doctrine of Scripture is to recover the voice of God Himself, right? And you know, we kind of see—we uh, uh, don't kind of see—we see Jesus applying the the principle of sola scriptura in His ministry towards oh yeah the Pharisees and the Sadducees, saying, you know, you have you have you have made uh, the the tradition of man more important than right. than thus saith the Lord and. Uh, much of Jesus's ministry was calling people back to what the Word of God truly means and what it really says. And well, yeah, I mean that was his that was his method. He would say, "Have you not read?" Yeah. You know, whenever they would come out, he, he'd say, "Well, have you not read?" I mean, he he 
He could have appealed to his own authority, which he did many, many times. But in, in the end, I mean, he was appealing back to the word of God itself, you know? Yeah, what he said in the Old Testament. Right, right, what he said. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, right. Uh, well, well, maybe maybe you could just say, what's one way that uh, sola, script, sola Scriptura is, is under attack today in our, in our current... Well, yeah. Well, in 1978, we have the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, and that was really uh, a modern uh, response to the attack on the scriptures. Yeah. You know, in, in the, over the last 50 years or so before that, and so you have you have liberalism attacking the scriptures, and so we, the church, took a stand and said, okay, the scriptures are are inerrant. They are authoritative. They are binding. They are sufficient. Uh, I think the sufficiency of scripture is under attack as well. Well. You know, this is that's you know thirty something years ago, yeah. and um, you know we have to we have to go back to this again, and we're still battling for um, we're still battling for inerrancy. We're still battling for the sufficiency of Scripture. So, and you know that's kind of the reason why um, why we need to have such a stronghold on defending sola scriptura, um, because if we lose that, then we begin to see the other doctrines. Become part of you know they're in question, they're in question. Right. It's like dominoes. Yeah, exactly. And and you know even in my own denomination that I'm in right now, and I'm and I'm okay with saying this. You know I'm in I'm in the Christian Reformed Church, uh, and and it's gone gone through uh, a big issue on perspicuity, the mm. perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. Uh, on its uh, you know whole controversy in, in women and ordination. So now it's its policies say. You can believe that it's biblical to say only men should be ordained, and you can believe that it's only biblical or that it's biblical that women can be ordained as well, and that both positions are now valid in our denomination. And that's an attack on sola scriptura in the in, in the category of the clarity or the perspicuity of scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, God doesn't speak out of both sides of His mouth. That's right. That's right. He he. There is one objective. Truth right. to the scriptures, right? And there's one um, intent. That's that's key. There's, in, there's one intent. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's good. And, and let's just move from sola scriptura. So now we have the basis, right? The basis is God's word is authoritative on all matters of sp- spiritual practice and life and church. Uh, only God's word. Right. So, well, there's a there, well. Let me just make a distinction real quickly. So, there's a difference between sola scriptura and solo scriptura, scripture alone and scripture only. Right. So, when we say only, we just have to be careful because there is value in some of the creeds that we get. Some of the early church councils were were deciding or not deciding on, but but establishing and, and identifying doctrine. And so, the the church has a, a life and practice which is valuable. You know, God does give illumination but but that the, these creeds are only as good as the scripture that that it is affirming so you know i i th- no no but it's if you read um matthew barrett just put out a book on sola scriptura and he he argues for that point several other do, other others do as well because i think it's easy for us to um and i'm not saying you specifically but i'm saying that the church at large misunderstands sola scriptura and says that okay well if it's not in the bible then i can't we can't talk about it but in truth, I mean, there there is a, a body of practice. For example, you know, even using words like Trinity, you know, we understand the doctrine of Trinity and understand how that's been fleshed out 
through the the body that it's been working, but that it never counteracts Scripture. It never goes against Scripture. And when push comes to shove, all the other stuff can burn up and go away because we have to rely on the Scriptures themselves. We're not going to be looking to traditions and councils as our authority. So uh, I think that the reason that's a, a, a key thing is because we don't ever want to say we're going to do away with what's what's taken place over 2,000 years. We just have to make sure that we understand the, the onus of authority, which is the Scripture. And I think that's very, very important. Obviously, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I came from a tradition that uh, probably would hold to so low Scriptura. They, they would say, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. Right. And really what that means is me in my Bible underneath, exactly. underneath uh, a tree, and nobody can tell me what this means but me. Exactly. And, uh, um, you know, I don't want you to speak to me in any way besides what the Bible says. You know, and the Reformed tradition says good and necessary consequences. Exactly. That's exactly is, the point. Is a, is a good thing. Is a real thing. And the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, in and among his people is is a reality as well. So so the, the, the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding the church into the truth. And we can look to the church to learn from it. So moving from sola scriptura, we go right into sola gratia. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people who maybe are unfamiliar with a lot of what the Protestant Reformation taught, the five solas, would say, oh, yeah, you know, saved by faith alone, but really not know what, what's being talked about with sola gratia. What exactly, what exactly did sola gratia mean to the Reformers? Why was it so important for them to emphasize this grace alone factor? So there's there's two two works that Martin Luther, by his own admission, says that are his best works that should stand the test of time. And one was his catechism, and the other was his work, the bondage of the will. And he says in the bondage of the will that that the the sola gratia is the hinge on which everything turns. And the reason for that is because if we if we have anything, or if we think that there is anything redeemable or savable within us, anything that's good that's going to help God or contribute in any way to salvation, then that is actually a Pelagian or even a semi-Pelagian position that said that there's any inherent goodness. But what what Luther discovered by reading Augustine, and what he discovered by reading Augustine is he also discovered Paul. According to Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. The scriptures bear witness to the fact that there is nothing inherently good, nothing inherently savable, and nothing that's going to produce. I mean, Isaiah 64, 6, our righteousness is but filthy rags to God. So if we think that there is a natural goodness that we're somehow contributing with God to our salvation, it creates a dependence on works. Right. And what sola gratia says is that, no, salvation comes completely by the grace of God, by the undeserved, unmerited grace of God, that he's the one who extends out his hand to save. He redeems. And so, again, the, 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 or, the origination of salvation is with God, and it's by his grace alone. The alone's really key because Roman Catholic believers, adherents, would say, well, we're saved by grace, too. There's grace for right, us. Right, exactly. But is it grace alone? Are you tapping into some kind of a grace pool that other saints have put into? Or is this the extraneous graces of, of Christ that have sort of been pooled together? Are you relying on your own inherent good works? Is it grace alone, or is it 
something else. And so that was his point is that, look, there's nothing that I'm going to offer to God uh, on a platter to say, this is, this is my inherent goodness. You can use it. He says, all the last words in Martin Luther's life are, we are beggars. It's true. He said, you know, we're beggars holding out for the mercy and grace of God. And that's, that's the position that Christians need to be is that we're reliant on God. It's his grace alone. Exactly. And, and you know, I, I think it's it's good to emphasize the importance of Augustine and his thinking, uh, or Augustine, depending on what yeah. you think is the, the best <laughs> Which way. Which school of thought, yeah. Well, best way to say it. Um, but Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. Right. And so, um, you know, Augustine's thinking in these categories about uh, the, the condition of the human nature. And then, you know, Augustine, of course, draws straight from Paul. Um, and so there it goes, just straight back to Sola Scriptura. <laughs> Um, teaching us that uh, that really there is uh, no reason that we are saved but by the grace of God. And in, in, in covenantal language, what that means is that God keeps both ends of the covenant. And, of course, we'll get into into the, how God keeps his end of the covenant. And, 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 and uh, pop quiz, it's, uh, it's Jesus. <laughs> so, um, that's right. Sola gratia, yeah. So... Um, and I think that that's something that needs to be, I think that's something that's often jumped over when we talk about these things is that uh, um, we talk about, we may talk about by faith alone uh, in, in broader evangelicalism, um, but because we don't talk about by grace alone, then, then, uh, then we say, well, we're saved by the faith that we put in Christ, that, that it's our faith that saves us. Which is, right. that's not what by faith alone means either. Right. And if you don't have that, those building points, then you, then you have a misunderstanding there. And sola gratia, I think, definitely needs to be, to be emphasized more uh, in our churches today is that, right. that, that grace factor. Of course, then we go right into the material principle right. of the Reformation, sola fide, mm. um, justification by faith alone and 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 in in your book you talked about some of the language barriers that were happening in the time of the reformation that really may have led to some of these misunderstandings in the catholic church about about what faith is uh from the latin vulgate and and so you know at the time of the reformation there was there was also this this mantra of ad fontis, back to the sources, and, right. and and Hebrew Bible, Greek Bible. These were things that were becoming uh, discovered again and, and going back to and saying, okay, well, that's what it says in in the Latin Vulgate, uh, which is a translation we've used for some time. But but look at the Greek word here. This this means something different, um, right. and it can be misunderstood here. And so maybe talk a little bit about about some of those things uh, that really clarified things for especially Martin Luther and his life. So the fact that, you know, Luther was uh, an Augustinian monk, but he, he did, as well as the other reformers, have differences with Augustine. And one of the one of the key things, and this is something you smack into even now, because, you know, with Roman Catholic um, theology and then Protestant or you know, Reformed theology, we're, we're, we're using this, we're talking about the same guys. And so, you know, we'll say, well, Augustine said, and then the Roman Catholics will say, well, yeah, well, Augustine said, you know, and we'll play that game. Yeah. The issue that Augustine had, especially in pertaining to justification, comes specifically with what it means to be justified. And, and he was maintaining, and the, and the Roman Catholic Church, to some degree, was maintaining that, that to justify meant to make righteous. 
that somehow you had to become righteous, basically to become savable. And, and, and the reformers were going back to the Greek, like you were mentioning, and they were talking about the fact that, no, this doesn't mean to make righteous. It means to declare righteous. Right. It means that God is making, this is, and this is the sum of the language, a forensic justification, a forensic declaration that this is, this is a, like a courtroom drama, that the gavel's coming down and the judge is saying, you are declared justified, even though you're not you're you're not inherently righteous, but I'm I'm saying that you are declared this righteous because of what Christ has done. His righteousness, as an alien righteousness that's outside of you, is impar- is imputed to you on your account. And so, when you come to the Father, you're coming with with the merits of Christ on your account, but they're not yours. They don't belong to you. And so, this distinction to to make righteous versus to be declared righteous. Um, this is a, a huge point of division. A huge, it has huge ramifications. Yeah, and this is where we're going to hit some sticking points. Is that we're going to say, well, look, you know, to be to be justified means to to become righteous, and that's what that's what Roman Catholic adherents are trying to do is to to justify themselves before God by their works and by their faith in those who've done works for them. But that's really not what the Bible teaches. Right, and and you know, in doing that, it's an insult to God. Yeah, because you're saying. Yeah. Christ's work was insufficient. Right. It was, right. it was not enough to help him. Right. right. I exactly. have to help Jesus be my savior. Exactly. And, um, and, 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 you know, uh, obviously I love when we say, well, yes, we are saved by works. Christ's works, his exactly. perfect works on our exactly. behalf. And, and it's, and it's the way that we receive that work. That's what faith is. It, faith is receiving that work. Um, it is not a work. It is receiving that work. Um, and I think that's an important distinction to make as well, because I think sometimes uh, as Christians, we're, we're often um, tempted to place faith in faith in the sense that yeah, we can have, uh, yeah. you, we, we can say, well, I don't feel very saved this week. Right. You know, so, right. th- so I don't know if I am. And that's you placing your, your faith in the, in the quantity or the quality of the faith that you have rather than in Christ. Right. In Romans chapter 4, you know, it's Paul says, you know, Abraham, you know, God was making a whole bunch of promises to him. And, and the text says that that Abraham believed God. So his faith was actually in the person of God. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right. So in the end, you know, that he he's, he's looking, uh, he's believing in God, trusting that he's able to perform what he says he's going to perform. Um, so yeah, it's not in your own character, your own, your own ability to believe it's, it's in the character of God, you know, absolutely. Well, I'll give you an opportunity. What would you say to someone maybe who's listening to the podcast right now and believes that their works must be added to their faith? Well, I think, you know, James says that faith without works is dead. And so, but the, 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 the sticking point, the, the issue that we're going to have is, is what comes first, and, and what, what is the basis of this? Because a lot of times what we can do is we can say, well, you know, we, we want to have morals, we want to we be a good person, we want to be religious, and I'm going to go and do these good things because it's the right thing to do, or yeah. that somehow God is pleased with this, because, you know, how could God not be pleased with me doing a good thing? Yeah. And what happens is that we're trying to, number one, we're trying to justify ourselves and offer something to God and say, look what I'm doing. But in the end, it actually becomes an exercise in self-righteousness. You know, we're thinking that we're going to be offering something back to a holy God, a perfect God, that somehow he's going to 
you know, set aside his judgment on, on our sin, that he's going to wink at us and give us a pass. But that's, that's not how this works. There's nothing we're going to present to God. All of our good deeds become actually wretched deeds if they're done with a, with a heart that actually hates God. And so what has to happen is a person has to be born again. God has to reach into their heart, give them, remove the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, a heart that is, is, that is, uh, that is regenerated. You have to be born again, and then out of a, of a saved, justified heart, the fruit that you have been saved is the fruit of righteousness. So the deeds that you do after you have been saved, they bear fruit to what has taken place as genuine. But apart from that, you know, you're not going to prove anything by just doing good deeds if you have no love for Christ. Um, that's, not, that's not how Christians act. That's not what Christians do. And so a justified heart is going to produce the fruit of a sanctified heart. But you cannot sanctify a heart that's not justified. It's just not possible. Right, right. And, and I love that you mentioned that, that idea of, or, you know, under, understanding regeneration, how it takes place. Mm. Um, and, and what order it takes place. You know, I think a That's lot right. of the reason why so many people in, 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 you know, broad evangelicalism in America don't really understand the five solas is because they don't understand that underneath the five solas is this view of salvation that is thoroughly, um, you know, Augustinian. It's thoroughly um, Paul Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11. It's, right. That's there. And so the only right. way that we can understand that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, is is understanding that it's God who, who causes us to be born again in order to see that grace as beautiful and, and, and see Christ as, as lovely and, and, and call out to faith in him. So that's that's important that we mention that because I think that really is part of the reason why we have the situation that we have right now. So mm. solus Christus, it goes right into that, and, and right. Um, by uh, in Christ alone. So all these things really tie. They you. It's really hard to talk about just one, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> right. you start dragging these other things in because they are so uh, so tightly knit together. Um, right. and, and it's so important that we do see them together as a collective. Um, Solus Christus was really about the sufficiency of Christ, right. wasn't it, during the Reformation? Was yeah, what Christ did sufficient? Was it, was it enough? Right. Do we, I, I've said this before elsewhere, but, you know, a, a lot of times I think that Roman Catholic theology, Roman Catholic life and practice seems to take sort of a team approach that I have Jesus who has died for me, who has bled for me, it's through Jesus. But I've also got to rely on Mary. I have to rely on other saints. I have to rely on the magisterium and make sure I'm at church and the mass. And there, there's all there's this, this dog pile of people and terms and things and means of grace all sort of lumped in. And so, you know, none of them would ever say that they would deny Christ, but, but you're, you're adding in a whole bunch of other things to it. And it's almost on the hope and maybe the prayer that that if I can get enough of these people on my team, I can get to heaven. The Hail Mary. The Hail Mary. <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. See, look at that. Beautiful analogy. That's really what it is. I mean, you're, you're trying to just stack up an all-star team to get yourself to heaven. And, and in the oh, and then you're hoping that your family's gonna pray for you and give money to the church and do you know masses for you when you're gone. Yeah, it's like my goodness, like it never ends. In the end, though, is your faith solely in Christ Jesus? Is is His work on the cross? When He said on the cross, "It is finished," was He telling the truth? Is there something else that has to be added to it? And if your answer is no, then you affirm solus Christus. 
Right. Um, it's really that simple. If, if your Jesus answer is, is no, but then you don't affirm. No, but right. you don't affirm <laughs> solus Christus. <laughs> That's right. So in the end, I mean, we have to be. I mean, the the the, the totality of Scripture points directly to Christ that is on his shoulders. We have a capable Savior. He is our champion. Amen. He is able to save by himself on his own merits, on his own authority. He is the head of the church. He is the one who has earned our pardon. So um, that's really what it comes down to, that we, we cannot add anything else to his work or to his person to say that somehow some someone else is going to be in there. Mary, you know, I love her. She's a, a dear sister in the Lord. Absolutely, she's, yeah. She's in heaven, but she is not my redeemer. She is not my co-redemptrix. Exactly. She has no value salvifically to me as a believer. Zilch. Um, she doesn't pray for me. Nothing, you know, and right. I think that we have to affirm it is Christ who intercedes uh, for his church. Amen and amen. Uh, I love what the author of Hebrews says. Christ is the author, the originator, the creator, and the yep. perfecter. The finisher of faith. That's right. Of our faith. That's right. And he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near. Um, mm-hmm. And so he is all that we need. Um, what would you say to someone who says Christ is just one way? It's blasphemy. It's wrong. I mean, Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Greek for no one is, you know, no one. Uh, so it's <laughs> That's good for me. Greek I'm right taking now. Greek right now, and I need that. I need those easy once-over things. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's really as clear as that. I mean, whether you're claiming to be Christian or whether you're anyone else, I mean, if you say that there's any other way, well, Jesus doesn't believe that. Jesus doesn't say that. Right. Um, he said, I'm, I'm the way. I'm it. So if as soon as you say that there is some other way or some other means, you're calling God a liar. And first, John has very strong words about calling God a liar. So yeah, something um, like Antichrist or something like that. Yeah, I mean, we don't even have to appeal to the sola. We can go right to Christ and look at his words and say, he says so. And so right. either you disagree with Christ or you don't. And, and Christ even says that God the Father only receives those who... Look to his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent. That's so, right. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's got to be emphasized. And, and uh, maybe some people have a difficulty um, explaining the last solo. We've, we've talked about all the other four, but the last one seems could seem, if you, if you don't go back to the context in the Protestant Reformation, if you don't go back to the scriptures, um, seem a little ambiguous or maybe even just kind of, well, soli deo gloria. You right, know, right, right. Um, but but there is there is a scriptural backing to the sola, and there is a reason that this one is there, that it was emphasized in the Protestant Reformation, and that is uh, that if all these other things are true, then it must be that the reason for creation and the reason for salvation is for God's glory, right. Um, so the Apostle Paul specifically said, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Um, and, and so what we have in the Reformation is we have this sort of myth of a sacred-secular divide, yeah. where some things that you do are sacred and other things that you do are secular. And, um, and, and there's this division there. And there's, there's even a division. One of the, the hallmarks of the Reformation is also the priesthood of all believers. That doesn't really get talked about very much. But yeah. the idea that 
that you know that every every man is a minister to some to some degree that all of us are tasked with the charge of of proclaiming the gospel giving an answer for our faith um, you know doing the work of ministry Ephesians chapter 4 that God gives gifts to the church for the purpose of the church doing the ministry so so the the whole point of this is really to wipe away that myth of a of a divide to say that that all things can be done to the glory of God. There yeah. are some things that are religious and some things that are not, because even doing your job, paying your taxes, raising your kids, all things are done, as Calvin would say, quorum Deo, before God. God is watching what you do in your life, and, and we have to give an answer, not just for the stuff we do while we're sitting in the pews, but everything yeah. else in our life, too. There's, there's, no, there's no dark corner of our life that is going to be unexamined. Yeah. And so... You know, the Reformers caught on to this and, and, and went with this. So did the Puritans. I mean, the Puritans were keenly aware that everything they did, uh, they had this, this grand notion of vocation. Even your vocation, what you did with your time, could be redeemed and, and, and could be a sanctified thing. So, um, yeah. you know, it's a matter of surrendering all of your life uh, under the authority of God and under the, to the obedience of Christ, and that really becomes it. You know, everything that you do, whether you eat, drink, Go watch a movie, what you put in front of your eyes, what you do at night. Everything that you do with your family, with your kids, should be done to the glory of God. And so this is a, a plea to have uh, to have your whole life examined by God and, and to be capturing all of life and mortifying sin and doing all things for God's glory. So um, that really is the totality of all of life. Right. And, and you know... Uh Calvin also said that we're doing this all in the theater of God's glory. That's so, right. And, and, That's right. and you know what? Something to add to that, it took away the ranking system, too. Mm-hmm. You know, Catholics said mm-hmm. they got these saints. They're different than, than, than us. They're, they're saintly. Where right. in the scriptures, who are saints? All who believe in Jesus Christ. That's they're right. hagios. And I mean, even even to the point where one of the seven sacraments is, is a special grace given to, to those who are in the, in the ministry. So it's like if you're not a minister, you're you're technically missing out on a piece of grace that you should be getting. Right. So it's like th- that whole system is flawed. That whole way of thinking is flawed. That somehow you're missing out on some of God's blessing inherently because you're not in the ministry, and uh, it's just wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. Well, would you say that uh, that reformed doctrine, such as the five solas, is really just a reaction against man-centeredness? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's um, when we when we when we look to the scriptures and we when we recover the doctrine that is taught in the scriptures, it naturally goes against our own sinfulness. Exactly. You know, we have we have a way about us that is that is fleshly. There's a way about us. You know, man is always right in his in his own eyes, and so we think that that it's about us. That it's it's focused on us. And Hebrews twelve says, you know, get your eyes off yourself. It's it's the get your getting your eyes on Christ, laying aside every mm. encumbrance, everything, every single thing that's going to cause you to stumble, and getting your eyes on Christ. So, you know, re- reformed doctrine or Reformation theology is really just a, a reestablishment of the doctrine of Scripture, which is is the bomb to our soul. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's it, that's the only the gospel is the only thing that saves, and so without the gospel, we are we are doomed. We're lost. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're bent on man-centeredness. That's the sinful nature. 
Right, and uh, that's what's so important about Soli Deo Gloria is that it takes that attention off of us and it says, no, this mm-hmm. is all for the glory of God. Right. And uh, that's what we need. We need that as people who are naturally bent towards focusing on ourselves and our own importance and our own glory. That's right. Well, Nate, it has been great. I, for one, as a believer, am thankful for what God had, God did through those men and the Protestant Reformation, but I'm also thankful for you, a, a humble pastor in New England, working towards uh, reviving that area through uh, pastoring your local church, your church plant. You planted this church back in 2009, right? 13. 2013. 13. And praise God for your work. But I'm also thankful for this book that you put together. It is called Why We're Protestant, an introduction to the five solos of the Reformation. And I hope this conversation has been helpful, but I hope it's just really whet people's appetite to go and learn more about this. There's Mm. so much that we can learn. There's so much that we can grow in in our understanding of these these things. Uh, But I just want to give you an opportunity to kind of just... Tell, tell people where they can find you, you know, websites or uh, tell people where they can pick up the book, um, where they can get it and uh, read it. Um, so go for it. So I'm like the common cold. I'm just everywhere. Um, you can <laughs> you can find me on Twitter, uh, just at Nate Pickowitz. You can find me. I have a, a public ministry page on Facebook um, so they can they can find me there. Um, there's also the the church's website uh, that has uh, the the sermons at our church and information on our actual fellowship, and that's harvestbiblegilmanton.org. It's a lot to remember, but it's there. Um, so yeah, I mean they can find me really anywhere, and um, you can find the book on Amazon, um, and uh, that's easy to get. So uh, yeah, just just blessed to be able to come on here and share. And uh, one one thing I would say, and I I want to keep on saying this as often as I get the chance to, is I really am encouraging people to go to the bibliography section of my book and, and look at the other resources that are there. Uh, I read a lot of stuff, but there's so much that's just uh, very, very good. And, um, and I hope that this book does nothing more than drive them back to the Bible, but to drive them to other really good resources. Um, go back to the original sources that were written back then, and also just uh, some great stuff that's coming out now. I mean, this is really, this is a celebration for the church at large, um, t- of this doctrine, of this of this uh, godly heritage. And so uh, just to be able to share that with other believers is just a huge joy. So, yeah, get the book, go to the, go to the back of the book first, read everything else under the sun, <laughs> and uh, I think you'll be blessed. That's awesome. Well, this has been Five for Fruit. Until next week, may you bear much fruit to the glory of God. of our savior the fullness of god born in human form deity in the flesh we need a spirit and the word to open our eyes so we can see correct the vital lens pfeiffer fruit is a proud member of the society of reformed podcasters check out more members of the society at reformedpodcasts.com subscribe rate and review five for fruit on itunes google play and stitcher give the facebook podcast page a like and join the group for more discussion Leave Carrie a voicemail at 708-740-0098. Leave him an email at info at fiveforfruit.com and visit the website fiveforfruit.com to listen to past episodes and to read articles. Until next time, this is Five for Fruit, your five-minute fix for Reformed theology and practice.